When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Here is my goal, my purpose. Thanks to him, I shall prove Geralt of Rivia that there is no limit as to what's possible. You too, one day, will discover such a purpose, Witcher. Even those who are different deserve to live. Hello there. Hello, everyone. It's Kyle here from the podcast of Surprise. And I'm super excited to be joined here by Aziz Zerakania and Macau Tabrake. Uh, I am Kyle and Trentamirth, and we're going to be covering The Bounds of Reason. I believe this is Aziz's favorite short story. Aziz? It's a tough call. I think it's at least my favorite of this book. It's maybe not my favorite overall. It's so hard. I have a, such a hard time picking favorites, especially amongst things I love so much. So yeah, it's a Nami. Let's call it that much. It's it's up there. I'd really do like it. It's and it it gets better on reread. There's a lot of nuance, a lot of fun things to consider. Having read the whole series and seeing how it reflects back on some of these early themes, pretty strong in, in, in that regard. So as I said, our names, we, we were having a huge laugh because we always change our names between <laughs> each episode. And I'm like, I don't know if I should take Kyle a Trenton Mirth because Mikhail might go villain Trenton Mikhail or something like that. But uh, anyways, <laughs> Mikhail, what's going on? Ah, not too much. Good to be back. Good to be starting Sword of Destiny. I think I like this book overall better than um, The Last Wish. So I'm I'm really excited to get into these stories and edge closer to really Geralt and Yennefer's Raisin Detra and the whole reason why we're reading this story. Yeah, we're, we're, we're going to talk yeah. about the difference between Last Wish and this book and um, also uh, The Blood of Owls. Before we get into the actual analysis, Aziz, we have some supporters on Anchor. And as that's been increasing and really helping out the podcast. Absolutely. We want to give some thanks to Maura, Andrew, Ryan, Sam, James, LC, and Anonymous. <laughs> We're still a pretty new podcast, so getting support early on is, is very encouraging, very motivating, and very much appreciated. We'll keep them coming. Geralt the Witcher is in a cave hunting a basilisk. He's armed with his usual sword and not, not, I say, a mirror. Unbeknownst to even Geralt himself, he's been killed by the basilisk thanks to that lack, according to a huge man in a leather apron standing well outside the cave amidst other curious town folk. He is now dead, as surely as the sun shines in the sky. It was plain from the beginning that he was headed towards death like all the others before him. He didn't even take a mirror with him, only a sword. And everybody knows you need a mirror in order to kill a basilisk. Given this overwhelming evidence of the Witcher's untimely death here in the first few paragraphs of a book we're just starting, well, I'd say we're all pretty disappointed and a bit confused. Some of the town's folk move to loot Geralt's belongings, but an unarmed stranger appears. Apparently no fan of looters, he says, Leave the horse alone, my darling. The looters seem to think they have the edge against this solitary, weaponless man, but his Zeracanian protectoresses emerge, and they have sabers whose edges are far more deadly. So too, the wielders. The townsfolk we quoted loses his head after the ensuing dialogue, quite literally. 
Geralt emerges from the cave during this exchange, surprisingly alive after all, despite the now headless man's claims. He throws the basilisk corpse to the ground in frustration, realizing that the people he was doing a service for almost robbed him. And they're underpaying him. But his mood turns positively quickly when he realizes the generosity of strangers, a rare thing, stopped the robbery in progress. Not content with a single good deed, the man, who introduces himself as Borch Three Jackdaws, a truly fantastic name, invites Geralt to dinner at his expense. He introduces his companions as well using their shortened nicknames, Thea and Vea. Geralt is wary as he's accustomed to most people treating him like a leper, but Borch insists that shunning witchers is an opinion worthy of those who bang sheep. Geralt seems almost touched and removes his glove to shake Borch's talons, er, hand. Sneakily, the inn they dine at is called the Pensive Dragon. Borch, though not richly dressed, is flush with coin, almost as if he's been hoarding it for many years. His generosity in ordering food and beverage and in tipping the proprietor in gold is notable. Once a bit of food and drink has been consumed, the conversation turns to philosophy, and we love when that happens. Borch makes the case that order and chaos are natural forces that all must reckon with. Geralt, as we've seen him do before, says he prefers to remain neutral and just do his job, while claiming not all things can be defined by order and chaos. The example of dragons is raised. Bad example, interrupted Geralt. You see, the boundary becomes blurred already. I don't kill dragons in spite of the fact, no doubt, they represent chaos. Why is that? Three jackdaws licked his fingers. But that's outrageous. Surely of all the monsters, the dragon is the most dangerous, vicious and cruel, most terrible of all the reptiles. It attacks humans, spits fire, and it even steals virgins. Haven't you heard enough stories about that? Is it possible that you, Witcher, do not have a few dragon slayings in your list of accomplishments? I do not hunt dragons, Garrett replied dryly. Borch expresses astonishment at this and further inquires while continuing to eat and drink with no sign of slowing down. Staying on the subject of dragons, Borch further inquires as to Geralt's knowledge of the different types of dragon, in particular the golden variety. Geralt says firmly that they don't exist, and if they did, they'd be... Mutants, the muscles in Geralt's jaw tensed. Mutants are sterile, Borch. Only legends permit what nature condemns. Only myths can ignore the limits of what's possible. Vea, who had previously shown off her sword skills and her looks, now shows off her insight and empathy, perceiving the deep hurt in Geralt over that statement and moves to comfort him, realizing the Witcher is including him himself in that sentiment. Borch, perhaps thinking that partying is a better remedy for such feelings, orders a tub for the four of them and they continue their drinking upstairs. Yeah, we, got, we got a con here, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Cut to the next day where it seems they've got a small problem regarding a bridge crossing. Turns out the king of Nidamir has cordoned off the area, though it's not part of his realm. Many travelers are stuck waiting for this to be resolved, unsure of when that might be. For the meantime, only those with passes can get through. Amidst all these waiting uncertain folk is none other than Jaskier, who is, quote, the most celebrated of minstrels and poets for a thousand miles around, according to him. Having been there a while, he's able to explain the situation, and quickly enough, we learn why the bridge is blocked. There's a dragon! Apparently, they've tried to kill it with a poison sheep, but only made it very sick. Borch, for one, is glad to hear it still lives. With the various explanations, Geralt seems to grasp what's happening. The king wants the treasure. Seems simple enough. But wait, it's not the treasure that the king is interested in, though surely it's a nice bonus. The real treasure is this entire region called Malior. It appears the locals created a false prophecy stating that he who slays a dragon in the region becomes its king. 
they thought themselves safe because, well, no one has seen a dragon in this area for a few hundred years. But, well, if Nidamir kills it, he gets the country, and the dragon is sick from the poison. So it shouldn't be that hard. However, Nidamir has no intention of fighting the dragon personally. Instead, he's put out the word for dragon slayers, and several have answered the call. A trio called the Crinford Reavers, a famous upstanding knight called Ike of Denesle, and a band of dwarfs led by one Yarpen Zigrin. Each of these have slain multiple dragons in their careers. This all makes it clear why Jaskier is here, too. A kingdom in the balance? A dragon hunt? So many famous warriors? Think of the ballads. Borch sounds a little bitter about it, though, and certainly doesn't see it as worthy of song. Battle? Asked three jackdaws. It's more of an act reminiscent of an autopsy or the butchery of a pig. The more I listen to you, the more you astound me. A bunch of warriors stumbling over each other to finish off a half-dead dragon that's been poisoned by some yokel. I don't know whether to laugh or puke. Missing from all this is sorcerers, but that void is filled quickly enough. One has preceded their arrival and with a pass, so she's already across the river, and another named Doragere appears as well. Geralt cynically assumes he's there to claim dragon's parts for elixirs, which turns out to not be the case at all. He's in fact an unusual man who believes that even monsters have a right to live, even those that kill other species. He reveals that the sorceress already across the river is Yennefer, which causes Geralt to shudder. It's clear that they must get across or miss out. After some drinks and flattery, Borch comes through with a bribe of two and a half times what Geralt earned for killing the basilisk. This gets them across the bridge and into the action. Next, we see they've caught up to some of the would-be dragon slayers, and they're all sitting around a campfire, drinking and discussing the situation. The leader of the Crinford Reavers, Boholt, is an untrustworthy man, but experienced in such matters. He points out that dragon hunts often attract a crowd like this, but almost everyone runs off when the dragon actually appears, only to return again when it's time to claim the treasure. He points out that some not-so-decent types deem it easier to kill dragon slayers than dragons. Boholt, aware that witchers don't kill dragons, wonders aloud at Geralt's presence at all. He suggests pointedly that surely the Reavers and the Witcher won't interfere with each other. Surely. This segues into a discussion about how to split the treasure, since that's preferable to fighting over it. The dragon will be tough enough. The dragon slayers are adamant that the professionals, the ones who are actually willing to fight, should get half, and anyone else who helps gets a quarter, and the king gets the final quarter. Borch pointedly asks what portion of the reward will go to the poisoner sheepbagger. One of the Reavers says his reward is death for interfering with professionals, potentially poisoning their dragon-slaying business as well as the dragon. Geralt points out that they've been neglecting to consider the third dragon slayer, the famous knight Ike. As Bolt is explaining that he doesn't take Ike seriously, Yennefer emerges to join the fire and the discussion. She claims to be the king's representative and agrees to the terms Boholt had put forth to the others, including the added provision that the sorcerers have access to the dragon's body. She's not happy with the deal, believing that the dragon slayers are unnecessary. She mocks them, saying they'll be wishing for her help soon enough. In truth, Yennefer wants the body for herself in order to restore her fertility, and Doragari wants the dragon to be killed by no one at all, so clearly he doesn't like the deal either. She leaves, and Geralt follows. They haven't seen each other since he ran off. As usual, Yennefer cuts to the chase. Men like to see their former lovers again to reminisce about the good old times. They take pleasure in imagining that their bygone love affairs assure them a perpetual right of possession on their ex-partners. It's good for their self-esteem. You're no exception, apparently. He has mistaken her politeness for forgiveness, which she corrects him on quickly and surely, telling him she will forgive him never. Never. 
The next day, the caravan of uneasy alliances sets off. Geralt finds himself in discussion with the Chancellor Gillenstern. Like Boholt, he wonders why Geralt is here at all, but he notices the same about others as well. I must say, your presence here seems strange to me. A witcher with more scruples than there are fleas nesting in the coat of a fox. A magician who never stops spouting druidic incongruities regarding the balance of nature. A silent knight bought three jackdaws in his escort from Zeracania, where, as everybody knows, they make sacrifices before the effigies of dragons. And suddenly all join our hunt. It's strange, don't you find? The reveal that Zeracanians worship dragons is indeed what we might call a very important detail. It seems like they'd be more likely to fight for a dragon than against one. Gillenstern has a point. There are an awful lot of anti-dragon slayers and non-dragon slayers in the group. So the so-called druidic incongruities are coming from Doragere, he who believes no monster should be slain due to natural balance and ecosystems and such. Yennefer points out how unwise it is to speak as if he's planning to interfere with several groups of professional killers in the midst of making their living. Rather than taking her advice, he mocks her sterility, apparently deciding that he needs even more extremely dangerous people angry at him. Doragere leaves, prompting Geralt and Yennefer to argue with each other instead of him. Shortly thereafter, Borch asks Geralt why he's there. What's his purpose? Geralt claims he has none. He has no reason to be anywhere in particular and that Borch is lucky to have purpose of his own. Borch begins to tell Geralt that he does have purpose after all, but the Witcher just doesn't want to hear that. At the front, they're deciding which route to take, the long way around or a bridge that Sheepbagger claims was built by trolls and is thus sturdy. With everyone debating what to do while standing still on a treacherous mountain path, it sure would be a disaster if someone started a rock slide. And that's exactly what happens. The rock slide kills a lot of soldiers and supplies, but none of the characters with names are killed, except perhaps Borch, Taya, and Vea, or so the characters think. In fact, they caused the rock slide, not wanting this dragon hunt to succeed. Several of our heroes have a close call, only to be saved by a magical rope. Geralt and Yennefer are highly annoyed to find out that, of all the people in the group, their rescuer is the ultra-zealous knight, Ike of Denizli, who proceeds to blame the rock slide on the presence of so much, as he says, vermin, including those whom he just saved. Geralt, full of pride and shame and on edge over his arguments with Yennefer, announces angrily that, as vermin, it would be better if he left. Before he can make good on that tantrum, however, Sheepbagger comes running up to declare that the impossible has been spotted. It's not the dragon they were looking for, but... There was in this creature an ineffable grace, something feline that clearly contradicted its reptilian provenance, for it was, without a doubt, reptilian. The scales it bore gave the appearance of being finely painted on. Furiously brilliant light shone in the dragon's bright yellow eyes. The creature was most certainly gold. From the tips of its claws, planted in the earth, up to the end of its long tail that moved slowly amongst the thistles, proliferating upon the height. The creature opened its big, amber, bat-like wings and remained still, looking at them with its huge golden eyes and demanding that they admire it. And they surely do. On top of that, it could communicate via telepathy, so it is exceptional in that regard as well. The exceptions pile up further when the dragon announces an intent to engage in honorable duels with any challenger without using its flight or dragon's breath. Ike quickly accepts. Knightly one-on-one -on -one combat is exactly his specialty and his preference. He has a long list of victories over monsters and Geralt says he's the real deal. 
but he's clearly no match for the Golden Dragon. It's over in seconds. Ike isn't killed, but he may never ride a horse again. Definitely not this horse, who came out even worse than his rider. With their champion defeated so anticlimactically by a dragon far tougher than the sick one they were expecting, the royal party abruptly leaves. Nidamir speaks for the first time and reveals himself to be a pretty terrible person, though perhaps not a stupid one. He judges that simply invading the country will be easier than defeating this dragon and taking its head. He's probably not wrong. Yennefer asks Geralt to kill the dragon for her. He finds this hurtful, and his response hurts her in return. He regrets it immediately, but there's little time to dwell on it or speak further. Seeing the dragon slayers preparing, Dorigeri steps up to defend the dragon, though he really doesn't seem to need it. Geralt and Dandelion join his side, but Yennefer turns on them with her magic, and the Reavers disable Dorigeri. In true, there can be only one fashion— Yennefer then proceeds to turn on the dwarves and reavers, but Yarpin Zigrin attended Torque's lead ball tossing school, <laughs> and he disables her with a bullseye to the forehead. The two magicians, the Witcher and the Bard, are tied to wagons as Bullholt rips open Yennefer's dress, assaults her, and promises to do worse afterwards. Jaskier, angry at her for turning on him, expecting to be killed shortly, and always crude besides, refuses to stop staring, and he's lucky Yennefer doesn't do worse to him afterwards. The dragon has become quite bored with this squabbling and waiting around and advances on the humans. Displaying further incredible agility, he easily takes out the reavers, leaving them alive but unlikely to threaten a dragon ever again. The dwarfs are able to run away. Meanwhile, a small gray-green creature sidles up to the tied-up Yennefer. It's a hatchling, a baby dragon. It likes her. And the world turns upside down as the implications become clear. There is no hoard of treasure. The newborn is what the dragons were guarding. Though the dragon who had been poisoned was the mother, she was unable to protect her egg while in this weakened condition. But villain Tretton Mirth, a.k.a. Borch Three Jackdaws, answered the call to protect her. Order versus chaos. The villagers arrive in force, having traveled separately, and start to overwhelm the dragon. However, brave townsfolk are no match for dragon-worshipping warriors from Zeracania wielding their famous Zeracanian sabers, even when it's only a pair of them. They'd been hanging out nearby just in case the dragon needed help, and he did. Moved, Yennefer has a change of heart and suffers some scorching in order to free herself and lend a... foot. The wheels of the third wagon became square. The horses reared up, the wagon collapsed in on itself, and the Bearfield militiamen were ejected. Out of pure spite, Yennefer moved her leg again and, with an additional charm, transformed all of them at random into turtles, geese, millipedes, pink flamingos, or suckling pigs. <laughs> it seems spells cast by foot instead of hand have unpredictable results, but this certainly got the job done. None of those animals are threats to a baby dragon. But people who poison dragons are, and the graceful golden dragon ends the fighting by very ungracefully tearing the hapless shoemaker to bits in a manner gruesome enough that even Geralt turns away. It's personal, after all. Sheepbagger poisoned his adopted child's mother. She probably would have been next, but thanks to Yennefer's change of heart, the dragon and his champions spare her. He orders the sparing of all who remain, in fact, showing even more grace and a desire to end the killing. He has won, after all. Not just the battle but a prize more valuable than life itself. Purpose. It's necessary in this day and age. The creatures that you commonly call monsters have felt for some time more and more threatened by humans. They don't know how to defend themselves and they need a protector. A witcher. And the goal at the end of the path? Here it is. Villain Trentonmouth raised his forearm. 
Frightened, the young dragon started to chirp. Here is my goal, my purpose. The dragon villain Trettenmirth, who likens himself to a witcher among dragons, is a father now. He has a child whose mother and her kind are hunted by people in great numbers coming from the south. But he's capable of protecting this adopted newborn with gray and green coloring. Not exactly a child of surprise or even a dragon of surprise, but close, within the bounds of reason. So, wow, what a synopsis there from Aziz. Thank you, thank you. A big claps in the chat. Within the bounds of reason, I didn't think that pink flamingos being <laughs> cast by foot magic was going to be uh, included in The Witcher, but eh, Andre Sapkowski uh, is a troll. Uh, so, it's not in my uh, translation. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know what? That's a funny thing. Uh, we should talk about that briefly. I have this copy that we got online from a friend of ours who, who got a translated copy. And there are small differences like that. For example, the village is called Holopole in my text. I changed it to Bearfield because I know that's what it says. But there's other things like that that I didn't know. I, I didn't change because... I don't know. I didn't notice the differences. So that's kind of neat that there's some there's some slight translation differences. But uh, ch chat, also give yourselves a hand if you said villain Trettenmirth three times fast <laughs> over and over and over while, uh, while joining the read. I think one thing that was super interesting that we talked about sort of Destiny, and Mikhail, you said you preferred this over The Last Wish. And I I'm kind of there with you because my kind of reaction of it is The Last Wish was really these origin stories. It was more about kind of learning about Geralt and learning about the world. This one is more, I feel, about relationships and kind of moving the story forward. And then once you get into Blood of Elves, it's, you know, the, the main story. So I feel like sort of Destiny is kind of a little bit of The Last Wish and a little bit of Blood of Elves, but it really has a, a, a different kind of vibe from the other two books. And I really, I really like the kind of chaos versus order. And we see Geralt and Yennefer's relationship kind of start to come back and become more important. And this story is kind of like a launching point. Yeah, I have a lot of mixed feelings on this story. I think it does a very good job of starting Geralt's arc in this book, because I do think this is this is a book. Um, it, it's lacking the frame story that we had in Last Wish. And I think that's explicitly because it, it doesn't need one. These aren't unconnected stories. They are strung together, I think, both chronologically and emotionally. There is a clear path that Geralt follows and, and that Yennefer also follows through the story, through the stories. I think this does a really good job in that sense. I also love baby dragons, so that's a huge <laughs> plus for it. Like I, if something has a baby dragon on there. People, people were cheering that in chat and actually spamming some dragon emojis. So it must be quite popular. <laughs> Looks like baby dragons are popular all around. Yeah. yeah. Well, people didn't like season two of Game of Thrones. And I was like, baby dragons, man. <laughs> <laughs> it's also a really funny story. I've laughed out loud, like reading this several times. But there's a lot of problematic stuff in here that really brings it down. And I find very uncomfortable the sexualizing of Taya and Vea to some of the offhand things that are said makes me really uncomfortable. Like there are stories that I think you would be forgiven for reading and being like, "Ugh, this is sexist. I'm not reading this anymore. Even though, you know, we know that at the end of the day, um, Sapkowski does a lot more deep explorations and great characterization and stuff like that. So yeah, I don't know. This is, this is somewhere in the middle for me. Right on. 
I love the way the themes come together. It's it's great theme setup. The theme of of loneliness and and sterility and all these different powerful but lonely beings coming together and kind of in the middle of nowhere is really neat. I just think that's super cool and well done and it's well hidden. Uh, and when you reread the story, knowing it, it's it's like like a lot of things that are well written and well done. It's a sep- it's a different experience the second time through. You know, the action is is solid enough, but that's really not what makes the story. The timeline in The Witcher is always a little little difficult to figure out sometimes because I, I think Sapkowski kind of wanted it to be a little malleable. You know, he wanted to give himself some room. But I feel like this is definitely before the Voice of Reason and before the first story, before The Witcher obviously after Last Wish, because they've met. That is a little tricky, like framing what's happened and what hasn't happened. As a side note, uh, there was more seafood soup, which, you know, always makes me smile. One of the themes that we have to talk about, and, and, and I think is probably one of the strongest themes that strengthens this book and the series as a whole is the, the theme of family. Because at the start of the story, you see kind of everybody's scattered and they're kind of doing their own thing. And Aziz, you mentioned loneliness. And you really see Borch at the end kind of outline like how important like because he has this intuition about Geralt and Yennefer's relationship and how special it is and for a golden dragon for something that magical and mythical to make a statement like that it's like Sapkowski is really thrown in in our faces saying hey pay attention to this yeah you know yeah it's very word of God (laughs) yeah but I think it's just a really important message to say, look, adoption is parenting. It's important. It's real. And that's a good purpose in life to have. Just because you can't have kids from your own body doesn't mean you can't have that, basically that same thing, et cetera. That theme of family. And then we kind of see a little bit of foreshadowing with Geralt going to become a parent later on with the golden dragon taking the child. And that's kind of a little bit of foreshadowing that it's going to happen with Geralt later on. So there's some really cool groundwork that Andre Sapkowski lays with this story. Across the seas, in Ophir and Zangwebar, there are white horses with black stripes. I've never seen those either, but I know that they exist. The golden dragon is a myth, a legend, like the phoenix. Phoenixes and golden dragons do not exist. Thea, leaning on her elbows, looked at him curiously. You certainly know what you're talking about. You're a witcher, said Borch, drawing some more beer from the small keg. However, I think any myth, any legend, can contain a grain of truth that sometimes can't be ignored. We have this this series of takes on Geralt's regular recurring uh, mansplaining, which is really (laughs) bigger than normal this time, huh? (laughs) Yeah, and it's not his fault because he doesn't know that he's talking to a little roll of dragon, but he is actually (laughs) dragonsplaining. (laughs) <laughs> what dragons are like to an actual dragon? Dragon So he, so in the last wish, he he magic explained magic to a sorceress. Fertility, fertility to a to a <laughs> like a doula, basically. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. He, yeah. He's and consistent. That, <laughs> he is. <laughs> everybody's goals are not aligned at all. And uh, in, in the end, like basically none of them really get what they want, which is hilarious. Yeah. Well, I mean, that, that goes to a very poignant thing, right? Because everybody does have a reason to be there except Gerald. And he kind of extrapolates like, why am I here to why am I here? You know, and like then <laughs> yeah. it becomes that whole like moody section where he's just like, damn, I, 
I don't know what my purpose is in life. <laughs> and then Yennefer's like, shut up, you whiny baby. <laughs> <laughs> we see uh, Taya and Vea say he is the most beautiful. And we wonder, like, we're wondering, like, what, what are they talking about? Like, are they like, re- are they like really into Borch? Like, what's this polyamorous relationship going on here? And then we find out that it's a matter of perspective that Geralt games, which is, you know, sometimes can be the most important thing in life. You might have thought one thing and gained this perspective and it completely changes the way you go about things in life. So I think that that's something that's super powerful for Geralt and kind of humbles him because he has to to learn how to treat people that love him and learn how to express himself. While Geralt doesn't really have a reason to be there, he finds a reason to you know, start start moving forward with some of the things in his life that he's been apprehensive about. Last time in The Last Wish, we had this cool theme merging where the herb lore really merged well with the main themes of the story. Here, it's kind of similar, but instead of herb lore, it's, it's dragon lore, like the perception of dragons, the legend of dragons, and like the stuff that Geralt's talking about and how how that turns into reality and how that filters the lens of the of character's beliefs within the story. And we have this awesome, like, McCall, you brought this up when we were talking offline about how it's also like a reverse buildup where we hear these stories about dragons and then Geralt's like, well, you know, red dragons are actually brown and gray, green dragons are really gray. And then we, so, but then we have an actual head to heels, tip of the tail, tip of the talons, eyeballs even are gold. <laughs> and it's like, no, this thing is pure gold. Yeah. And I, I love that because it's like, it really is kind of returning the magic and and not just in a little way, you know, not just in like, oh, love is magic or whatever. It's just like huge honking, miraculously golden dragon. Um, <laughs> and I, I, I really love that kind of, you know, because Geralt is kind of taking that that path also, right? Like from almost like an atheistic, like nihilistic belief in his life to be believing in possibility, you know? And that's like a huge theme in the story and in and in this book really because he starts off in that frame of mind where it's what am I doing here I don't have a future whatever he thinks that the limits of his own possibility are extremely close the limits of possibility being a great name for this short story which we discussed yes yeah. <laughs> we uniformly liked it better than the bounce freeze <laughs> <laughs> yeah for those aren't clear that is the alternate name of this story like that's a different translation which we think is a better translation to be clear that's the limits of possibility or the limits of the possible Mikael, you make a really good point because Geralt is kind of, uh, kind of always, you know, grappling with this idea of destiny, right? Like, what does that really mean? You know, I guess what Geralt realizes is that when you come up against limits, you know, it's not that limits aren't going to exist, but maybe it's not a sign that it's time to stop moving. It's a sign that it's time to go in a different direction, oh. you know, and that's what he and Yennefer do together. Like, she gives up her, doesn't, I guess, necessarily, we know, give up her idea of fertility, but she kind of gives up the idea that like, I must get this dragon and it will pay for this. And that's the only way I can be happy. And it turns out that if she just walks in this different direction with Geralt for a while, they're both going to become the parents of Siri. It's really interesting that it's called the bounds of reason because their minds are expanded. Like they have this very closed view of what they view their limits of possibility as, you know, like where they're going in life and what they think they should be in life, these kind of parameters. Yennefer is dead set on this idea and killing a gold dragon. And then she completely changes her mind when she sees the child of a dragon and moves to protect it. Yeah. Yeah. 
It's interesting that Geralt is pretty much an exception himself. Like, he's the most outstanding witcher. He survived more Trial of the Grasses stuff. He's kind of the limits of the possible, and he is an example of the limits being pushed. Maybe it wasn't a good limit to push, but he's proof that there is more. There's, be, you know, what people can conceive of. I think Jennifer makes herself an exception. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like Geralt is exceptional because of his body and what he was able to endure. And he's obviously a great, unique person also. But Jennifer is just like deliberately as unique as possible. I mean, like the first time we met her, right? She was, I'm not listening to either the Magician's Guild or, you know, the, the laws of the city. Like she, she just is a rule unto herself. Yeah. I like this, this note one of y'all wrote here about... Borch argues that being singular, being unique is good. Like Geralt sees it as a point of loneliness. It's funny. It's funny because he's a golden dragon, something that is incredibly rare and unique, yet he likes to take, he likes to polymorph into a human and he likes humans. I think he's, I think he, I think it's because he thinks that their possibility is limitless, like the possibility for love and all of these other things. He believes in them, yet they do bad things. You know what I mean? He still has that belief that they can be good. I, it's similar to Geralt himself, right? Geralt, like very often, he's, he comes off as someone who just hates people, but he he clearly risks his life for them. Oh man, I would love to know what Geralt's like Myers-Briggs. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's definitely an I. Um... Definitely an I. <laughs> I walk in the column because I'm only a servile golem only a strand of oakum carried by the wind on the highway. Where should I go? Tell me, for what purpose? In this company, there are plenty of people to talk to. Some don't even cut short their conversations when I approach them. Those that don't like me tell me to my face rather than talking behind my back. I accompany them for the same reason that I went with you to the Bargeman's Inn. Because it's all the same to me. I'm not expected to be anywhere in particular. There's nothing for me at the end of the road. Yeah, we got to keep in mind that he's just argued with Yennefer when he says that. So he's particularly down. He's particularly bitter in the moment. But still, those are like real feelings coming to the surface for him. And boy, that is really sad, isn't it? I mean, he's talking about like, well, one reason I'm here is this at least people here will talk to me like, oh, God. Yeah. I mean, it, it's very much like killing time, right? Like, yeah. It's- and I mean, I think that, that that's the whole point of this book is is taking Geralt from a place where he has no reason to exist and landing him in a place where he does. Oh, yeah. Because that is... like, And that, that's a really well said because here at the beginning is when he's most lonely, probably. And by the end, of course, is when he's, you know, there's Siri. So... Yeah. It's funny how we just... We kind of have this unspoken rule here in this show that we don't talk about what's coming except that Siri is coming. Yeah. <laughs> Their, rela- their, their relationship is the most important relationship in the whole yeah, series. Yeah, I agree. They're, it's very true. Yeah. I was like thinking about this last night and I'm like, I'm, I have such a type. Like, this is ridiculous. Like, big, strong, protect little, small with powers. And like, that's <laughs> it. Like, Carol does it. Mando does it. Wolverine does it. There's like, there's more, I think. But it's, you know. The, 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 the Kurosawa-esque lone wolf and cub narrative. Yeah, and, and that breaking down the barriers of like a small, <laughs> cute thing well, getting through the gruff exterior. I took a film class at, at Florida State. The teacher had us watch like a, a, a movie that was centered around tropey woman situation and then the opposite, the, the tropey man, like this kind of trope. And we watched 
kindergarten cop, which is very much this trope. <laughs> the big tough guy that learns to like, you know, be a father. Well, it's part of it's, it's part of the archetypal structure of the hero's journey too, of redemption, right? Like getting, yeah. uh, like yeah. we see with Gail, we talked about how important his relationship is with women and how hard it is for him to love. But this is a really, really, really huge part of his story and how he grows as a person as, and as a man. Right. Like it's for for him to understand the world. He, because of their love, understand himself more. And that's a really big part of progress and moving forward in life. He, he learned, he basically, he learns a lot from women. Let's just say that. That is true. Yeah. Have that conversation with Dora Gray and Yennefer. Geralt just listening in being like, (laughs) so like yennefer is arguing that dragons have to be eliminated because they are the only kind of the apex predator to humans and if you know you can't have humanity living in towns which you need for propagation of the species then humanity will die out and dragons are the only thing that can stop that this comes across as enormous projection on her part because she's like a woman should bear a child once a year and blah 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 and it's like it's just (laughs) just, yeah it's just not subtle at all like we know exactly where your head is at and Dora Gray I think makes his best point of the story where he like he laughs at her and he's like hi remember disease remember how the living situation is in these cities that you think are so important and how like high infant mortality is so he argues the opposite point that like nothing should be killed at all and then Geralt I think kind of represents like the middle way which is sort of like well we may we might need to keep some of these things under control hence like I'm not going to tell a mom that her child who was devoured by a basilisk should be like happy about that but you know there there is a certain idea of like you can't just eradicate the enemy. That's just not feasible. And I think that's why Villain Trenton Mirth brings up his like Witcher of the monsters thing that there like has to be a balance. There has to be a certain degree of allyship. Order versus chaos. Right, exactly. Yeah. So it's it's not really that the fittest survive. You have to kind of work together for general survival. Um, and obviously there's going to be consequences to that because life is life. Doesn't that idea kind of crystallize about the idea of power? Um, because the, you're, yeah. you're right, because the power, the way power is exercised, it's the mm-hmm. same thing. It's like, well, how do we define the fittest? This is the stronger yeah. the fittest survive. Well, if we define fittest as morally fit, that's one thing. If we define it as just pure strength, then that's not good. And I mean, that, that sort of is a really interesting way of looking at the party, the dragon hunting party, right? Because you have Ike, who represents like the moral way of doing things, supposedly. And, you know, then you have Boholt and his and his people who are who are doing this like for brute strength and whatever. And then you have the dwarves who are kind of more like practical and like we we want to get the treasure and whatever. Although the, their aims kind of blend in with Boholt. Then you have you have the dragon who is like objectively the most powerful. It is the apex. And he's the one, Bill and Trentonworth is the one who decides that like, I'm not going to exert my power just because I can, you know, like he doesn't, Mm. he takes out Ike and and the others like, but he doesn't fly (laughs) and he doesn't, you know, use his fire or whatever. And at the end, he's like, I'm I'm the one who's going to say we're stopping the killing. Like even Taya and Vea, who are like head and shoulders above everyone else and killing pretty much, (laughs) you know, he, he stops that. So I think that is a way into that idea also that just because you are physically the most powerful doesn't mean that others don't also deserve to be on that plane. Well, I think it's really interesting because people are looking for this wealth. Obviously, that's power. Money is power. But I think the lesson that 
Borch is trying to teach is like how fragile life is. Like, look, got a baby dragon. He, like we talked about this privately and laughed about how he could have just like nuclear everyone and all those fights. <laughs> like he's just like, you know, throwing his tail around and stuff like that. But he's really trying to teach a moral lesson. And that's why yeah. I think that you made such a great point on that is he's like the like morality of power. Uh, going back to what you said about like being like a traveling village, McCall, that's that's something I was really trying to get at when we were writing this episode. Like Sapkowski's clearly trying to make that point where it takes all kinds. Like even the mm-hmm. the worst people in this group are providing some value. Like Ike may be kind of a jerk, but he saved them. Like he he stuck to his principles. Boholt is an awful man, but if you point him in the right direction and just stick him, like give him the job of fighting dangerous monsters. That's a useful thing. Like Geralt says that he and the Reavers went, killed every giant centipede in Redania, which that's a useful service. <laughs> but, and this is like a traveling village. And I love, too, the royals are useless. <laughs> like, right? <laughs> Aziz, we also talked about um, Ike, Ike and his xenophobia. He's like throwing out words like vermin. Yeah. You know what I like? That's, that's like really terrible. And then he throws this magical <laughs> elven rope and does like probably the most courageous thing out of the whole group. You know what I mean? So it's like, I think this story really kind of highlights, uh, like the chat says, the yin and yang of people, the like the duality, the the mirroring, the two sides of everyone. Like there could, you could choose a really bad path or you could choose a good path. You just have to open your eyes to the different limits of possibility. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Talking about Yennefer's thing about dragons and apex predators, I was wondering if we have examples of that. She says dragons are a threat to cities, which basically no other monster is. Like, a, you know, even a vampire doesn't pose that kind of threat to a city because it's only ever going to kill a few people at a time. It's never going to just destroy the whole settlement. We actually get math on that. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so it's this is actually a theme that comes back later during the main series. So without spoiling it, just it's important to, to that, that it, this groundwork is being set here. Do we know? Does that actually happen? Do dragons destroy cities? I mean, I know they're capable of it, but is that actually a thing that we know of happening? I think I think there's stories about red dragons being like voracious okay. and aggressive, and because uh, Geralt kind of teases like what the different dragons are like, yeah. right? Really interesting, you know, the fact that this this golden royal dragon is something that could destroy them all is trying to teach everybody a lesson, essentially, yeah. and not destroy. Like he could, like he could, is easily destroy the village, yeah, right? Just easily, like he could have just come back and been like, "Look, these are this, these people poisoned my adopted kid's mother." You know, by human standards, he has reason for revenge. Like in this culture, his reasoning would be accepted. People are saying that the pensive dragon, I mean, it kind—it does this, you know what I mean? That kind of does make sense. The dragon is pensive. He's not going in there and light, lighting everybody on fire. Yeah. He's capable of tearing you down, but mostly he likes to talk and think and, and eat and have, have beers. beers. He yeah. kind of reminds me of Spike from Buffy in that scene where he's just ah. like, like, have ah. you had curly fries? Why would we write, wipe out uh. humanity? Like... <laughs> 
we talked about Nidamir briefly. Let's let's cross him off the list. He's a useless royal and just a terrible person. And Yennefer is using him as an opportunity to get things she wants. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. Every, I mean, so is Gil- Gillenstern and all these people, you know. Yeah. Like, it's weird that you're sort of a little bit pro-Boholt in that it's like, more democratic <laughs> that like yeah i do think the people who do the work should get more of a share than the king who sits on his ass and you know rides along i don't know he's also a really bad person so i don't 100 percent agree yeah. with him either <laughs> um but yeah i think nightmare is like interesting you don't have any sense of him through the story and then when he does finally decide to talk you know you're like oh okay like he he speaks with like purpose and he like has his own ideas and he's like i've learned much and i'm like oh maybe this is a good kid and then it's like oh no oh no no no, he got all the bad, wrong ideas from this. It really culminates where he's just like, I don't need the dragon. I just need the princess. I don't even need the princess of or I just need her womb. And then I will poison her after she bears me an heir. It's, it kind of goes to this idea of the mirroring. We see this one, we're shown this one person by Sapkowski. And then we see the reverse of that person. Like Nidamir is out there. He's like, oh, I need to get that princess. So I got to kill the dragon. And then he's like, yeah, <laughs> I don't think I need that that much after gaining a little perspective. And we see that with almost all of the characters, like their, their initial idea of what they want really yeah. changes. I'll just slaughter a different set of peasants instead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he sucks. Macrofag says the name Nidamir means a person who won't give you peace. Huh. Oh. That does seem to fit pretty well. Hmm. Nidamir is bad, but not as bad from a literary perspective because I think the narrative is very much like judging him too. Mm-hmm. So Dandelion, early in the story, mentioned when he's talking about what happened with the dragon, he's like, oh yeah, we sent you know the village idiot and some other person who was not fully facultied, you know, to go check if the dragon was dead. And then we built them a small but pleading burial mound after. And like, ha ha ha, they die. That's great. Also, even worse, the mentally disabled person that they send is referred to as the son of a woodcutter's R word that I'm not going to use daughter by her rape from a bunch of pikemen and like from some war. And it's like, like just kind of like spoken very jovially. And like, at least that's how I read it. And like, that's a horrible crime and a tragedy. And like, it shouldn't be confused with humor. Sorry. It's like locker room humor, which is means the worst, some of the worst kinds. Yeah. Um, like soldiers, like, yeah, I agree. It That made me uncomfortable too. Yeah. And then the, um, the sexual assault of Yennefer by Boholt, which we get like a little bit of a judgment on when Geralt, you know, says that he's going to hunt Behold to the ends of the earth if he rapes Yennefer. But Dandelion is just like, nah, man, this is my, I'm going to look, this is my payment for like being dragged on this stupid journey. It's like, dude, you wanted to come. Like you were, <laughs> you were on this journey to begin with, you know, and you got left behind because you had to sleep with a widow. Like, you know, um, yeah. <laughs> so it's. Sapkowski kind of writes it in a like slapstick yeah, humor yeah, way. And I that do not like yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. I think it might be arguably Jaskier's lowest point in the entire series. I think that's, series. That, that might be fair to say. I mean, he goes pretty low sometimes, but like, yeah, I think this yeah. might be... He He's definitely better in the rest of this book. It's hard for me to say, Geralt, in what circumstances our respective forefathers had their first meeting, but I know that for dragons, nothing is more loathsome than man. Man awakens in dragons an instinctive and irrational hatred. I'm an exception. To me, you are quite likable. So this is basically Bill and Trent Mert saying that he, he's one of those people who keeps cockroaches for pets. <laughs> because Humans are puppies. 
Yeah, yeah, but he only he sees them as puppies. Like all the other dragons are like, that's a cockroach. And yeah, he's that's like, a cockroach. Oh, look at that little human, you know. So I want to go through a couple of quick parallels between Geralt and Borch as far as him being like a dragon witcher. First of all, the adoption via payment thing is huge. Uh, the, the child of surprise, somewhat parallel, even down to this baby dragon being gray-green, like Siri herself has gray hair with green eyes. Sterile, uniquely colored, both of them, right? Extremely quick, unreasonably quick, graceful. This tri- Kyle, you had this great point about the trial of grasses inversion. It's not... Borch doesn't go through a trial of grasses, but the other dragon eats all this poison and it's kind of like a, well, uh, it doesn't make her stronger, but it doesn't, but it is kind of like a, the theme is similar. The trauma from seeing other people die from the trial of the grasses, we're, we kind of see villain Trendemurth, see, mm. we see his partner die and obviously, you know, Geralt is given up by his mother. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. And neither of them like to kill people. But will, but absolutely will. They won't hesitate if the situation demands it, but they don't want to do it, right? They don't like killing people. They don't like killing in general, but they're really good at it if, if the situation uh, demands it. That at one point, they're just talking about like, I'm going to take the tail. Teeth. I'm going to take yeah. the leg. You know, like they're just like, <laughs> imagine if you're sitting at around a campfire, and people talking about like what part of the human body to cut off to keep as a trophy or eat, you know, <laughs> it's like. Of, of your human body. Yeah. That's actually a good segue to something that I think is uh, maybe a little confusing because in the show, it seems like they made villain Trettenmurth the mate of this, of Merg Debrake who dies. But in the book, Merg Debrake doesn't die. She flies away and escapes in order to heal, which presumably is going to take a long time, which is part of why she gives her child up. She's just not capable of, of handling it because she's so weakened. And they're not they're explicitly not mated in the books where it's not necessarily... I'm not sure if it's clear in the show, but I think they sort of gave that vibe. I got that vibe. I'm not sure if everybody else did, but it was kind of like well, rereading the story is what cleared that up for me. It's like, okay, no, he's definitely... They're definitely not mates. They're, he is a protector to her and adopted her child. I think, the, I think the reason they did that in the show is because they wanted to do the parallel of Geralt getting to Siri at the end and, you know, um, obviously, yeah. like, Siri losing her parents and the people that she loved being alone. So they wanted to focus on that loneliness more, I think. I think you're right. I think the dragon, the Merc de Brake is the parallel to Calanthe slash Pavetta who dies leaving Siri alone, uh, has no parents. Where in this case, it's like the dragon's mom is out there somewhere, which maybe the intention there was for it to be more like Geralt because Geralt's mother might still be out there somewhere. All the dwarves are interesting to me because there's definitely like a a not subtle Jewish parallel, I think, um, in a lot of what they talk about. Like he uses the word pogrom, which is at least in America, a very like Jewish specific word of, of, a, of an attack against Jews. And Yarpin has a whole speech about how he has to like behave in a certain way because if he doesn't, then people will start talking about how they'll just kick off another pogrom somewhere, which is super important for also way later in the series. But yeah, I mean, like I, I thought this was also an echo of the like singularity idea that there is sometimes a bad thing in being unique and that you can face hatred and you need to find ways to protect yourself against majority sometimes in like uncomfortable ways because otherwise they'll just kill you you need to like look like you're not easy to pick on Mm -hmm. right and the dwarves certainly give that off yeah (laughs) later we get into stories about halflings right and they look easy to pick on but they're not easy to pick on either (laughs) (laughs) 
I mean, I struggle with Yarpin a little bit just because he's so mean to Yennefer. And like, yeah, we just really don't really her. see why. <laughs> but like, you know, he's he's funny. Like, he's a great character. But he, yeah. <laughs> he's a little confusing to me. And not like, like, he's like, oh, she smells. Like, what's that disgusting smell? I'm like, oh, my God. Like, calm down, <laughs> dude. Like, if you have a problem with her, talk to her. But, you know. What was that line about a horse? It was like, that's oh, a horse riding a horse or whatever yeah, they said. it's really mean. <laughs> And yeah, it hurts like, her, like you can tell. It does, yeah. yeah. I think it's the idea that she's a sorceress and that she does have power. Maybe that's why like, she's like uh, the hierarchy of things and dwarves are, mm-hmm. you know, like think of themselves as yeah. powerful fighters and stuff like that. So yeah, the same reason you make fun of kings and people just have all this power because they have authority over you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, to be fair, you know, it's not like she doesn't try and double cross them. She does. <laughs> 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 Oh, yeah, just just while we're on characters, I just find it so cute when, like, Geralt goes over to Yennefer and he's like, you know, well, first of all, he, when he realizes that she's in the party and he's like, um, 200 linters. <laughs> um, and then also when, when he's like, when she's like, you thought we were just going to sleep together like old times, didn't you? And he's like, oh, my God, did she read my mind? And, like, he does this more than once. <laughs> like, there are other women who say things to him and he's like... Oh my god, is she reading my mind right now? And it's like, no, Geralt, they're just smarter than you. <laughs> <laughs> Doragere, interesting story about him. His apparently his la- that name is a common Basque last name, which translates to Hightower for our Game of Thrones fans there. I like how he's another example of all these sorcerers, despite their power and their long lifespans, they're still very human. They all have like very notably human flaws. None of them are like super wise or yeah it's another thing we get into later it's a, it's a good a good setup for more world building he's such a nerd <laughs> <laughs> yeah he really is he is he's like the guy from grandma's boy the really talented developer that just thinks he's better than everyone else <laughs> mm. I, I never would have thought we would be making a grandma's boy witcher comparison only on the podcast surprise people <laughs> <laughs> imagine Jaskier going to Zeracania and, and them thinking like he's typical of all Nordlings. And that's kind of what I think the Zeracanians are probably not normal for their for their region either. Well, <laughs> one thing that we should mention, Aziz, is we've had a lot of characters that don't return later on. Mm. One who's definitely not coming back is Sheepagger, because <laughs> that dude's quite dead. <laughs> well, they weren't looking, so you know, maybe. <laughs> Can, can I can I get a, a hand count in chat? Who is happy for the death of Sheepbagger? Well, I have mixed feelings. What? Yeah, He's terrible. He, he is terrible. But the only reason, the only person being in the story who has real reason to hate Sheepbagger is Villain Trenmurth. And everyone else yeah. is like, we got to kill this guy because otherwise our gravy train is done. <laughs> and like, we can't have these stupid peasants thinking that they can take out dragons. And like, if you think about it, like, it was kind of a good idea, <laughs> you know? And it's also hilarious yeah, yeah. how like every time he like comes up against an obstacle, he's like, we should stuff a sheep with poison and you know, and feed it to Yennefer, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I, I guess if I was in his shoes and there was a dragon in my town, I'd probably be terrified. I guess I could... I, could agree with on, on that point. Yeah, so he's not a good guy, <laughs> but I do think that a lot of the the hate that he gets from the other characters in the story is just because he's a peasant who's like jumping up his, above his station 
And yeah, like, he is a shoemaker, right? Yeah, that does make sense. Yeah, yeah. And the, the view of the peasants is pretty dim, honestly, in, in this story. <laughs> and, and and there is a pretty like clear hierarchy of like where people stand, like Nidamir's a king. Like, we got Taya and Vea who are like a royal guard to like this mystical beast. Sheepbagger's pretty low. Yeah. Shoemaker? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think we're supposed to find it unreasonable, that this notion that they're not allowed to defend themselves, that they're supposed to wait for their betters to come along and, and deal with it. From a human nature perspective, that's offensive. Like, no, like they can, they can, if they can deal with the problem themselves, then why not pass that method on to other people? It does, it does really you know? fit with the title of the chapter, The Bounds of Reason. It does, yeah. you're right yeah. on that. Now you oppose natural law, Geralt. My wizard friend was in the habit of saying that each and every being can prevail in nature in one manner or another. The end of one existence always announces the beginning of another. There is no limit, at least when it comes to nature. We almost went with that one for the opening quote because it does really speak to the, the title really well. There is no limit. Like, limits of the possible? Well, according to this quote, there isn't one, at least according to nature, or when it's nature. Which is an argument for Sheepbagger, to be honest, because if every being can prevail in nature in one manner or another, then, you know. Well said. Yes, that's so true. I can't believe I'm like, I'm, I'm the sheepbagger defense squad here. But like. what? Yeah, it's like, it's just, now you oppose natural law. Like, what is he supposed to do? Not defend himself yeah. and his right to like, like he's, it's, it's basically saying you have to wait for someone else to come by and champion order for you. There's, there's four here, four herbs that were, that come up. There's also some non-herbs like sulfur, like this basically... The poison they gave the dragon was like a what's what. I almost said who's who list, but these are objects, not people. So there, it's a what's what list of medieval poisons. There was no lilac and gooseberry this time. A notable absence. Geralt is not struck by that after having not been around her for four years. He doesn't have this reaction. So I wonder if, if Sapkowski had it to do over again, he would add like one sentence of that just to throw it in there. But maybe it was on purpose. Anyway, we have the three poisons used in the mixture to kill the dragon and then one other substance. The poisons are hellbore, belladonna, and hemlock. Hellbore literally translates to injure food. That's rather perfect for it being because it's, it's probably the most famous medieval poison. The name, in fact, derives from its use that way. The sim it symbolizes scandal because of poisoning people. But it also symbolizes tranquility because it has a medicinal use. A little bit would supposedly cure madness, but a lot of it would cause madness. No one uses it anymore. <laughs> it's, it's well outside of modern pharmaceuticals. It's got too many side effects. Kind of like people using turpentine and opium together and all sorts of, like in the 1800s when they yeah. were experimenting with medicine using cocaine and all sorts of other stuff. You're very right. That's that's very much on on the same sort of vein of, of thought here. Uh, there are some other alternate names for it. There's 20 species of hellbore, most of which are poisonous. Not all of them. Uh, names like Christmas rose, winter rose, and Lenten rose, as in Lent, the rose of Lent. And that's because it grows during Lent, tip, uh, roughly, which is, as you can tell by the other names, around winter. So winter rose is kind of cool. <laughs> it's remarkably frost resistant, which is, of course, that makes sense given when it grows. Medieval beliefs of it include that it was part of the brew to make witches fly and invisible. So, oh, how about that? It's from the buttercup family, which is the same family as 
the name Jaskier translates, yeah, the Ranunculi, because his, his original translation was Buttercup, yeah. and then they moved modified that. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that's confusing because all those nicknames are Christmas Rose, Winter Rose, Lenten Rose, but it's a Buttercup, not a Rose. It only looks like a Rose, but its family is not, speaking scientifically. Next up is Belladonna, a.k.a. Deadly Nightshade, a.k.a. Jimson Weed. It translates to beautiful lady because it used to be used as a cosmetic. And oh my God, if you ever wanted an example of how women's beauty product cause harm, the, the things women would have to go through to beautify themselves in ancient times are like, oh my God, it's harder to find a worse example. First of all, the symbolism of Belladonna is danger, deception, and death. And yes, this is something women would put on themselves. You can dilate your eyes with drops of belladonna, which also messes you up. So they were literally sacrificing their mental health to look better. And of course, this was social pressure, most certainly, but still. Hemlock. Hemlock's nicknames are poison parsley, carrot fern, devil's bread, or devil's porridge. It has pretty much the exact same symbolism as belladonna, meaning danger, deception, death, things like that. It's highly toxic and looks like wild carrots, so that can that probably caused a few issues back in the day. All three of these are associated with some famous deaths. Not all of these are confirmed because, you know, there was an ancient autopsies back in the day, but it's one of the suspicions about how Alexander the Great was killed or died was from Hellbore. Augustus, as in the first emperor of Rome, may have been killed by Belladonna. And Socrates was definitely killed by Hemlock. So those are all, those also have some famous associations. Um, in fact, Hemlock was used for executions in Athens for a lot of people, not just Socrates. Also mentioned was he- Mandrake. Mandrake is interesting. It's not a poison though it's a hallucinogen and narcotic, certainly taking enough of it would, have, would be bad for you, but it's more of an anesthetic. In ancient times, it was used that way to cause numbness. But relevant here is in traditions as old as Jewish scripture, it was believed to cure infertility. And the mention here was that when Dandelion is commenting on Yennefer's exposure, he says, wow, you must have used a lot of mandrake. Because he's referring to her to using it as some sort of anti-aging device, I guess. I'm not sure that's actually supported here, but <laughs> he's he may have been elixir-splaining there. There was, uh, like I said, no lilac and gooseberry smell this time. Um, the herb lore wasn't as prominent, but it still tells a fun story as always. Guys, I move that we change the name of our podcast to Witcher-splaining. <laughs> so lots of foreign lands have been mentioned as ease. Yeah, we get mention of some places that are never mentioned again, as far as I know, like Ophir and Zamwibar, which sounds like Zanzibar, Zangwibar, and Zarakani, of course, is mentioned again. Maybe those aren't super important, but they're fun to talk about. It's, it sounds really cool. Zarakani, like dragon worship is a thing there. So I would certainly be up for more lore if Sapkowski decides to publish it. And apparently the, the games expand on a lot of this stuff. So it's not canon, but if you're curious... For something, the wikis contain a lot of info on that, including like the fate of this hatchling and the you know more adventures of Borch, things like that. So the game the game adds some of that. I'm not super familiar with it, so I can't really speak to it. But I, I did notice that when I was researching this other stuff. We also get some mention that the Dragon Mountains are important, not important, but that they're a thing. Like farther north of this area, there's even more dragons living in more isolated areas, which sort of 
pushes back a little bit on what we were talking before about dragons being a threat to human settlements. It seems like most of them just want to be in uninhabited places where humans don't want to be anyway, especially like the white dragons, which live in like frosty mountains or the black dragons that live in swamps. Like people don't want to be there anyway. But there's also human settlements up in a different direction north. It's unclear because we don't have the map for that. But a certain archer character we have yet to meet gets their bow from this far north. So that's just something fun to keep in mind for later. And this is a great character. Yeah. Uh, also, we have the mention of Akvist the dragon, who the Yarp and Zigrin and his team killed. There's some lore on him. Uh, the game expands on him, too. He's apparently like an albino red dragon, which is pretty cool. And, and his horde was incredible. And, and apparently, some of the stones in his horde were mentioned in this story. Like some, I can't remember who it was. I think it was either Geralt or someone says, I've seen stones from his horde. It's one of those things where it sounds like it's exaggerated. Like the dragon hordes are often exaggerated, just like a lot. We're supposed to believe that these rumors are kind of a little bit out of control. But this, might, this apparently is a case where maybe it wasn't exaggerated. Yeah, now we're going to get into some uh, influences. Also, I, I know some people play the games, so there's like basilisk lore in the games and stuff like that. They differ from the books of the games. That's one thing we did want to point out, but that's something we could probably do in a, another episode where we kind of do like a you know, bestiary focus. Yeah, so basilisks are reptiles. And it's funny because when I was doing my research on it, uh, they're uh, reputed to be the king of serpents. And it's kind of funny because mm. we get a golden dragon in this story, which is very kingly, obviously. Mm. Arguably an even bigger king. He's the emperor of serpents. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sometimes uh, they're referred to as a cockatrice. Uh, many people know this is kind of like a Medusa-like creature where uh, they can turn their enemies to stone, which is why we get the mirror thing in, in mythology. Uh, the way you me defeat Medusa is you turn a mirror on her and turn her to stone or you behead her. So that's kind of some of the similarities that we see um, with the basilisk. Funny enough, basilisks are also found near Karamoran, which is um, you know where witchers get some of their training, get most of their trainings. I found, you know, there's different uh, mythologies that they are featured in. Uh, Greek mythology, like we said, Gorgons. Medusa is a Gorgon. They appear similarly in that mythology. Cockatrices and basilisks are kind of like birds slash uh, serpent. So they're kind of, kind of like, you know, manticores, an, an amalgam of different creatures mashed into one. Yeah, a, a serpent with wings does sound a little bit dragon-like yeah. too, doesn't yeah. it? We talked a little bit when we do speak about influences. Uh, Sapkowski sometimes, you know, will delve into Christianity or he'll go into like deep Polish folklore. But the basilisk, this is in Christianity, the basilisk usually represents evil and is a symbol of death. Christianity employed the symbol of basilisks at times with a number of other ser serpents to cast it as the devil mm. itself. Um, it's often used in coats of arms in Switzerland and based on, we talk uh, a little bit about the coat of arm of dragons disease, which you found with, with uh, the different yeah. ravens and stuff like that. So it's interesting. Basil, so basilisk, basil, Switzerland basilisk. That's pretty cool. Basil, basilisk. That's neat. <laughs> um, there's actually a story um, that when it was recorded into history, there was this bishop was forced out uh, during this Protestant reformation and the basilisk was blamed for an earthquake, which could kind of be compared to a rock slide. So I don't know if Sapkowski got some of his influence from that story, Aziz. I don't know that. It seems possible. Yeah. 
Yeah, you know, uh, their venom can be used in potions and stuff like that. So they don't really expand on that, but we know trial of the grad, there's all sorts of poisons that are used and stuff like that. So basilisk, pretty interesting in the way Sapkowski uses it in this story. Yeah, and they pop up in a few other places. They're one of the more oft-mentioned creatures. Like, I know there's like basilisk leather appears in a few places, just like on shoes or like sword handle. I can't remember exactly. Geralt makes a, a comment about Yennefer's boots. <laughs> like, she's like, yeah. those, <laughs> those basilisk boots are expensive. So yeah, they're super poisonous. Um, they have venom. They can turn you into stone. And they're sensitive to Ooh. silver, which uh, Geralt knows how to use. So pretty interesting. You de definitely fight him a lot in The Witcher 3. I could probably upload a video on my channel of me fighting one and dying. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but yeah. That'd be cool. There is so much real world dragon lore that I did. we decided not to really get into that. We would have to go into each, almost every culture that's ever existed and do their version of dragon lore. And there's no way we have time for all that. Yeah, that's not like a podcast episode. It's a podcast series. You're right. But I did at least try to see if there are any real world golden dragon legends. There aren't many. The, the most prominent one is in Chinese. It's more yellow than golden, but you, mm, this can be synonymous depending on how you view it. Like, especially if it's like scales and yellow, that could look golden. But the best match for this dragon, for what Borch is, actually comes from Dungeons and Dragons because that's where they're very good. They believe in order in Dungeons and Dragons. So that's on you. That's that fits really well here. Plus, they talk and they polymorph into whatever shape they want, which I couldn't find anywhere else. Now, again, since Dragon Lore is such a huge topic, it's entirely possible that it does have a real world influence that D&D borrowed from that I'm only seeing like a, a farther down the timeline version of it. Which is interesting to me because I, I don't know. Uh, Sapkowski has said he's not a video gamer, but that doesn't mean he isn't familiar with D&D. But I, I would still be kind of surprised to know that he's a D&D &D guy. You know, maybe, maybe I'm just wrong. But anyway, this is cool, but in a little peculiar way. As far as the real world, one of the first times we haven't had like a straight fairy tale reference, or at least a couple... You know, like Last Wish, we had a couple different ones, but other like some of the early ones we had like a strong one-to-one -one relationship for. It seems like Sapkowski's moved a little bit away from that and gone a little more indirect. But this one is pretty strong. There's a story, an ancient Polish tale called The Dragon of Wowell Hill, and a cobbler or cobbler's apprentice, depending on the version of the story, named Scuba with a K, feeds the, the dragon either a calf or a lamb filled with sulfur. And the dragon dies either from massive thirst or from it being stuck in his throat and basically drinking a lot till he dies. In some versions of the story, the character's name is Crack and not Scuba. And Crack becomes a prince from a cobbler because he kills this dragon. It makes him famous and, and powerful. In other versions, the story takes place during the reign of Krakus. Either way, the story is associated with Krakow, which is the former capital of Poland until like the 1500s. And so this all has that association. And to top it all off, Krakow is ancient, really ancient. And it began as a Stone Age settlement on Wowell Hill, aka the Dragon of Wowell Hill. And to this day, Krakow's Wowell Hill area is a World Heritage Site because it's super, super, super old, like early Stone Age human stuff is there. So that's cool. One last bit of influence. Kyle mentioned this briefly. There is a real Polish noble 
family called Torch. <laughs> and their actual coat of arms is three jackdaws or yeah. three ravens. And well, jackdaws are relatives of ravens. It is Polish for three jackdaws. So noble family of Borch. If anyone knows the significance of this to Sapkowski, please tell me because I am very curious. I'm not sure if Sapkowski took uh, any influence from Lord of the Rings, but I'm sure some of you got that vibe. I did want to mention that, of course, smog was mentioned in the chat a few times today. Telepathy, smog being a golden red dragon. That's kind of interesting. I kind of like the adventure of all the different factions of Bilbo Baggins and the dwarves and obviously uh, them wanting to get back their kingdom and, and their horde. But we find out in the end, it was uh, the, the most important part of the story was their friendships that they made. Obviously, uh, that's really kind of hammered yeah. home at the end of the Hobbit story. And that's kind of one of the main themes at the end of this one that I kind of wanted to talk about that I thought, you know, uh, that Borch and villain Trentamirth was kind of trying to tell people. So I thought, you know, there was some similarities and fellowships uh, between the stories. Yeah. Calling this, if calling the group a fellowship is a pretty good way to put it. Like we were talking about it as like a traveling village where it had all the different elements, but that's, this is, that's another way to put it. Yeah. yeah. Mikal, <laughs> what was your funniest moment? And you also found something interesting that we didn't have last time. Re-included. <laughs> <laughs> I think we did have one in the last episode, but yeah, now we have a pirouette again. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> Woo, pirouettes. <laughs> <laughs> there were a lot of funny things in the story. I really love Yarpin's um, mispronounced speech to the dragon when he's heralding, <laughs> you know, that Ike is going to come at him with conventional weapons and whatever. And I don't know if this is a parallel intentionally, but it really reminded me of Dogberry, um, the constable from Much Do About Nothing, who like can't say a sentence without saying it wrong. <laughs> so that was that was what that reminded me of. Um, and then and then obviously you know we have that whole thing, and then like he Villain Trenmerth destroys Ike, and Yarfin just goes fuck. <laughs> I just it was so funny. <laughs> I have a question about everyone's translation here because. When he says non-conventional weapons, he says only conventional weapons, and Yarpin says, does anybody know what a confessional weapon is? <laughs> yeah. I don't remember if he says confessional or conversational, but he says, yeah. he says one of those. <laughs> <laughs> That's really good. What's a conventional weapon? What's a confessional weapon? <laughs> <laughs> so I love how Borch calls the dude who gets his head cut off, my darling. And then he later calls Geralt, my dear. He calls the innkeeper, my beauty, and my good fellow, and my dear chap. So he really does like humans. <laughs> oh, he's getting he's getting mad compliments from them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's giving them mad money. He's like, that's not it. This is not an advance. It's a tip. Now off to the kitchen, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that reminded me a little bit of, I was at Con of Thrones last you, I don't remember the whatever <laughs> time, but like who knows? in the past, who knows? <laughs> it was it was the last Con of Thrones, and Nikolai Kosterwaldo was talking about how like he um he was talking to Charles Dance in the first season, and he was like, "Oh, how long are you on this for?" And he was saying like, "Oh, well, darling, you know, I think it's for three episodes, <laughs> but I don't really know." And he was and he was saying like, how he called everyone darling because he met so many people that he just couldn't bother to remember their names. <laughs> so he would call his assistant darling and just everyone he met was just darling. 
I like that Vea and Taya's names, he says their names are too hard to pronounce, and then it's, it turns out to be like, uh, Alvea <laughs> but that's not any harder than Merg to Brake or Villain Tretton Mirth. <laughs> so it's like, man, Zeracania's got some tough names. <laughs> I see you're not troubled by lack of silver. Do you live by the privileges of knighthood? Partly. Rejecto smiled in answer and didn't elaborate. <laughs> so this is obviously part of the setup for him actually being a dragon, but I think there's more. The joke is actually bigger here, which is that he's had a long life, presumably, and he's probably had knights before I come for him. And quite likely he's lived by the privileges of knighthood in that They've come and tried to kill him, and he gets their he's stuff. Got, he's got mad <laughs> loot from them. <laughs> <laughs> Which makes the opening scene a little funnier, because they stumble upon a riderless horse, because Geralt's inside fighting the basilisk. But like after Borch fights some knight, that's often what's going to exactly be left behind. So Yaskier Dandelion was pretty funny in this one. He's sarcastic as always. They're asking him for the story because he's been there. If, if we recall, he's been sitting at the bridge waiting for several days when Geralt and company show up. So he has more of an idea what's going on. And so he asked for the story and he says, what would you prefer in verse or in prose? And they say, <laughs> normally, <laughs> as you like. Jaskier did not lay down his loot. <laughs> he's like, no, I'm, I'm going to I'll have my chance soon enough. I wasn't super um, like I didn't love the um, the fact that the guard was drawing a picture of a woman, a very specific part of a woman seen from an unusual angle. But that was kind of funny. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then like the Nate, that guard is referred to differently as the scene progresses. So he like starts off as the artistic guard <laughs> and then he's like the halberdier and then he's the halberdier, newly raised to nobility, and then he's um, the future centurion, and then then and the final references raise the barrier. The rich decurion with a good chance of becoming a centurion shouted to the halberdier. <laughs> That's so good. He just yeah, he yeah. gets promoted throughout the scene, and it's just like tossed in there. I just I, I really like that kind of casual thing. And Sapkowski is playing a lot with the idea of hierarchy. In, in this story, so he's kind of just throwing, throwing us a bone there. There's a moment where Borch is telling Geralt to stay, and then he changes his mind. He says, actually, go ahead. Go ahead. Go to the front of the column like you're planning on doing. And then he drops the rock slide. So the implication is that Borch was... At first, he was like, no, stay here so you don't get hit by the rock slide. But then he's like, actually, go ahead, because I think he decides that it would be better if Geralt's killed in the rock slide because I think he's anticipating having to fight him and doesn't want to. That was a, an interesting thing to talk about because we're not entirely sure if that interpretation is correct, but it's a good example of the kind of thing we discuss, the little details and the bigger details over in our Facebook group. That's where we do all of our posts. We don't just talk about the books. We talk about the show. It's really just an open group, an open invitation to anybody that likes The Witcher. And uh, we just hang out and chat. And we do our kind of uh, pre-podcast discussions. We usually have a post that we do. That's going to do it for today, everyone. Thank you so much for the support, everybody that joined us today. This was super fun. And we shall see you soon. Bye, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye. Bye.